Well, our friends at Art Scroll have uh, done it again. I um, I mean, I just got the book yesterday, and I got home at about ten thirty last night, so I started reading it pretty late. Finished it this morning, and it's amazing. Uh, it's called a tap on the shoulder. Rabbi Mayer Schuster and a magical era of tshuva. Jonas and Rosenblum. Many of you may uh, may follow the columnist, very well known author and columnist, Jonathan Rosenblum. Uh, so Jonathan Jonas and Rosenblum is the author, and uh, Jonas and Rosenblum is with us live via telephone to discuss the brand new book. It's called a tap on the shoulder. And remember, you're lucky if you're a Nahum Siegel listener because when you go to artscroll.com and you order this book or anything. If you use promo code radio, you get a major discount and free shipping. Always use promo code radio when you go to artscroll.com. And in this case, you're looking for Jonas and Rosenblum's brand new book, A Tap on the Shoulder at artscroll.com. Jonas and Rosenblum, an honor, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. It's a pleasure to be with you, Malcolm. I mean, so many people have heard of Rabbi Mayer Schuster. Uh, they heard stories about Rabbi Mayer Schuster it's amazing to see you put the entire history and so many of the stories in one book. It must have been, and especially for you, seriously, because you have an interesting background yourself, it must have been for you a fascinating exploration to read about this man's journey and then to learn about this man's mission. Well, in terms of how fascinating the journey was for me personally, the fascination wasn't in uncovering Reb Mayer's story. I'd been writing or talking in speeches about Reb Mayer for for many, many years, and I knew him personally. I mean, when my <clears throat> when my wife and I came to Yerushalayim in 1979, and we started at Orsameach, and she started at the Orsameach Women's School then, it wasn't long before he started sending us Shabbos guests, so we knew him from the get-go. <laughs> it, and I had actually met him three years earlier, three, two or three years earlier, as a Ulpan student learning Hebrew after finishing law school and taking a year off before starting to practice. So I knew him uh, pretty well, and I knew I was always fascinated by him because it was clear that he was the least suited person for the task that he had set himself of anybody who ever lived. Well, what's also interesting timing-wise is that the era you're describing is like right at the heart of the height of what he was doing. Like you you, you got to know him at the time that he was, you know, in, in accelerated fashion there at the Kotel. That's right. That's right. From uh, the, the late 70s and through the 80s were definitely the high points. And uh, the excitement of the book for me in many respects was that it's a telling of the story of my generation. Right. Uh, Reb Mayer did not bring my wife and I into Orsamaeth, but everybody, there's almost no one from our good friends who we talked to who did not have an encounter with him for whom he was that important. I was sitting next to somebody last night, a Rosh Chabor in the Mir Yeshiva for many years already, and uh, and he wouldn't be here, except that every time he tried to leave, Rav Mayer was always there. He took him to meet Rav Noach yeah. Weinberg, and when he came out, Rav Noach was there. Rav, Rav Mayer was there, and then he took him to his Shabbos house. And there's nobody. The stories just go on and on, and these are yeah. these are mostly friends of mine. So yeah. it's, uh, look, it makes the, it particularly exciting. look the list of the people. 
the list of the people that that were affected by him, just the ones that are known and the ones that discuss it openly is unbelievably impressive. I mean, anybody who follows, you know, the Jewish community uh, from any vantage point, you know, he hears the names of the people who are now involved in, in real tradition, in our real heritage, uh, all because of him is, is just extremely impressive. Jonas and Rosenblum is with us. The book is called A Tap on the Shoulder. I cannot recommend this book enough. Go to artscroll.com. Now, you mentioned your generation, and obviously when I was growing up, I mean, you can imagine it being in a rabbinic family, uh, you can imagine how much credit the Six-Day War got for this transformation of people in your generation, you know, discovering their heritage and tradition and taking it a lot more seriously. Number one, would you agree that that's the primary factor? And number two, what were the other factors? What were the other life situations that the typical teen or older teen, the ones just finish, just starting or finishing college, were going through that, that brought them to this reality when they got to Jerusalem? I don't think, for Israelis, the 1967 war was a, had a major impact. And I think it also did for many Americans as well. But you have to remember that none of the Baal Shuvah Yeshivas, the first one that opened probably Deval Yerushalayim in 1971, so they, didn't, they weren't an immediate outgrowth right. of the 67 war. Right. Uh, it, it's funny to say, but the counterculture of the late 60s for all its pernicious aspects, but that counterculture in some ways made the Baal Tshuva movement possible. Explain that. Do you, I, fact, I, I know what you mean, but you got to explain that. Go ahead. No, I mean, there were people, the, 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 as Rob Mayer used to say, you could scrape people off the wall. There were backpackers. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of kids finishing college, finishing the Peace Corps, finishing at some break in their lives, and they simply took off around the world. The TWA, which doesn't exist anymore, but right. TWA in those days had a round-the-world ticket, right. which was quite cheap, and people were going around the world. Now, like a friend of mine who's, uh, you know, he's been a major, major successful invest, investor, but he's also been the chairman of a major keyword organization on American campuses, for uh, for a, a decade or more, right? We know who you mean, right? As he says, as he said, and he's it's, he's not embarrassed about this. Mm-hmm. He's one of the people who doesn't didn't give me a hard time about using his name, Tom Steinberg. Right. So Tom Steinberg said, by the time you've had five near death experiences on a boat in Thailand, <laughs> you know that that the, the, that the boat the the head of the boat took out a machete and told you to take off your, your money belt or your or the, the money around your neck, right. that you've been in a refugee camp that was run over by the path at Lao uh, <laughs> two days later and everybody was killed, that you, you know, if you watched uh, farmers in Myanmar, which is then Burma, sacrificing to pigs to the harvest guards, and, and you spent $5, which was a fortune for you at that time because you were traveling on a shoestring, to learn a mantra in Bangkok. So when somebody says, would you like to learn something about your religion, you've got no defense. And you, come, and you eventually get to Yerushalayim, you have no defense. Well, how could you say you're not going to learn? You learn about this mantra, you've, you've watched the harvest, these idol-worshipping uh, sacrifices, <laughs> you've done everything right. else. 
if How you, can you right, say no to this? I guess if you're, you're right, if you're intrigued by the most obscure of religious practices, then often, I don't want to say always, but then often one must assume you're going to be intrigued by your own heritage. I guess I guess there's something to be said for that. Now, you got to I mean, we got to talk about the man for a moment because I mean, you emphasize and and it's so amazing to read about it. How everything he did, and and what we know of, you know, the, the the you know the the folk tales are, and and most of them are, you know, not real folk tales. They are real, um, you know, that he's you know approaching people at the hotel and schlepping them off the wall and encouraging them to come to yeshiva or to a Shabbos dinner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you describe in the book how this is completely against his personality. How this doesn't fit in with the type of person, right? Mayor Schuster himself, a a Balchuva. Uh, the type of person he was. What was he, and how did he overcome that to become this king of Kiruv? Well, he was painfully shy. He was an inarticulate uh, kid, uh, very serious, always very serious, painfully shy. Find it hard to. Uh, he found it hard to talk to people. It was. Uh, I mean, in my own case, when he would call us up on Thursday night to ask us whether we could take a Shabbos guest. The conversation would always begin with silence on the other end of the phone, and uh, yeah. and then you'd say, "Is that you, Rabbi Schuster?" Because you learned that, as, as I think David Orlovsky once said, he's the only person in the world who introduced himself by not speaking. <laughs> but so you knew um, it was him on the other end. <laughs> yeah. So you, you knew the silence on the other end, and yet this man approached. 20 to 30 people a day for 25 years, or, or more than 25 years. Yeah. Now, that's an astounding thing. You asked, how did he overcome his shyness? Right. How did he overcome the fact that he wasn't extremely articulate? How did he overcome these things? And the answer is, he didn't. He didn't. But that was his, in, in many respects, that was his, his uh, stock in trade. I mean, one woman describes in the book, and I think I described her in Mishpacha magazine last week, she said, I saw him when he tried to talk to me. I felt so sorry for him. How could a person who had such a hard time speaking approach a complete stranger like me? Right. And that made her think something different as well. It made her think he cares about me more than anybody has ever cared about me, because if he's forcing himself against his nature to do this, then he must care about me in, in a way that nobody else has. And that's what they said. That's the, uh, my friend uh, of Eliezer Liss, who did the intakes at Nevei Yerushalayim in those days, says every single girl who came in said, I would never, never get in a car with a strange man. But with him, they knew that he, there was nothing that they had to be afraid of him because when he say, okay, we're going to such and such place, then he'd walk 15 feet ahead. Yom Tov Glazer, the famous surfer rabbi, says every time I would see him in the old city, I'd say, stop, slow down, talk to them. I think to myself, how's he doing this? But everybody who thought they could do a better job, no one, no one ever did a better job. No one was ever more effective. Because his wife, I think, put it the best. His wife said... He saw through them, and they saw through him. Amazing. He didn't see the rings. He didn't see the hair. He didn't see the torn jeans. None of that. He didn't see anything besides the shaman. I mean, one woman who worked for him told me that uh, at the time he started, he would fix her up on dates. 
uh, it makes you do it for her. But she said at that time I struggled with my weight, and um, and uh, and he, he sent me out with fine boys, but nobody was terribly interested. And when I say I think maybe my weight has something to do with it, he was like it, it was beyond. He couldn't believe that. He couldn't even accept that. He couldn't even. It was just unfathomable to him that there was anything besides the neshama. He didn't see. Uh, the physical yeah. world. You, you actually, you, right through them. You actually call one of the parts of the book Soul Searcher, and that, that says it all. I mean, he's searching for someone's soul, yeah. and that's all he cares about. You write on page 79, reflecting on the amazing series of events that took place from the time that Rabbi Schuster first tapped him on the shoulder, Jeff took to referring to Rav Mayer as the Willie Mays of the Kotel. Just as the great center fielder Mays knew how to play each ball as it caromed off the center field wall, so Mayer knew how to play young Jews as they backed away from the coattail. Now, number one, I had to read this on the air because, you know, if I have a chance to work Willie Mays... It's yeah, that's a, you're dating us, Malcolm. You know, you remember Willie Mays. I remember Willie Mays. Most of the people out there, well, I should have said Mike Trout. I mean, who my, knows my, Willie tr- Mays? Trust me, trust me, my 16-year-old asks me if Mays was as great as they say he was. So even the teenagers know who he is. But my point is that, you know, I mean, I'm assuming, and, you know, when I was a kid... We always were told the routine was, do you have a place you know, for Friday night? Do you have a place to eat a Shabbos meal? I didn't realize he was approaching people constantly and asking, you know, want to learn in yeshiva. You know, the Shabbos meal story was always much, much cooler than they do want to learn in yeshiva story. But, but every- what, you want to find out something about God? Do you want, are you interested in your religion? Would you like to talk to a wise man? I mean, every day he was down there by the Nate's Minion uh, most mornings. Frequently diving in the Kotel on Nate's minion, and uh, <laughs> yeah. And your point being with those quotes, your point being that for every individual, he he sensed a different approach, right? He sensed that this is the way to get to this neshama with this question and with this type of. It. Mm, no? no, I wouldn't so, say that. So what's the I so what's the Willie Mays? I mean, so what's the what's the Willie did. Mays? What's the Willie Mays reference then that he knew what you know, about each individual you know person on the wall? Well, it, it, okay, the central theme of the book, and the central theme that I would say, what do we learn from Rev, Rev Mayer is the power of Siyat Right. So he definitely had a, a, a cork of Siyat HaDashmaya. I mean, they say that LeBron James remembers every play in every game he's ever played. There's uh, some memory there. There was something intuitive about him that he knew. I mean, first of all, in deciding where to take somebody to yeshiva, how far to get them. Uh, uh, sometimes that was just that uh, Asia Torah was right down there, so right. it was easier to get there. Noach was usually available to talk to the people who were off the wall. And, you know, he would take people back and forth, and he wasn't abashed. If somebody said he didn't like this place, I have a, a section in the book where I take two people who are pretty— one is a, a, a really distinguished Thomas Chacham today, mm-hmm. and one is a, is a well-known author. One he brought to Orsamech, and he, didn't, he said, what am I learning Shnaim Ochsin Batalis? Two are holding a talis, but I don't know if, I have no idea if I'm interested in this religion at all. So so then he took him to Aish. Okay, now I, now I got Aish. it. He now said, I got it. Like my college dorm room bull sessions, and, I, and, and he wanted to hear Gamora. So. Right. No, now I got it. So he had a, he, he sensed a different approach depending on what the needs were of that specific person. He would guide them in the right, right he way. He never gave up, though. Right. That's the thing is he never gave up. You know, if somebody he would follow you to a kibbutz, you could push him away. He, he would you could not he could not 
there was no busha. There was no embarrassment. There was nothing that uh, there was nothing that he would not do. I remember this on the Opan. The first time I met him, we're out there lying on the grass, young twenty-year-olds, twenty-somethings lying on the grass. Uh, who knows what? And he comes up and getting in our sun. You know, we got irritated. You know, you're standing. How am I going to catch soak up my rays here? And you know, and people say nasty things to him. It just didn't affect him. It didn't affect him. And he walked away with one young man that day, who went to yeshiva, and 20 years later was the the rab of uh, Rav, uh, I think of Shlomo, of Shlomo Karlbach's uh, Moshev Modi'in. In other words, he he, he he had no ego. That that's the key. He had no ego. And as one of my friends said, if you have no ego, the hashkacha. The divine providence can shine through you. Yeah. And no one ever looked at Mayor Schuster and didn't say that the Seattle the, the unfathomable divine help that he gets is, but you have to believe in it. You have to believe in that help. You have to know it's not about you. It's not because you're so great. You couldn't get the word I out of him. One philanthropist who gave him hundreds of thousands of dollars to purchase the girls' hostel for. Uh, uh, in 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 the old city of Yerushalayim, which was a crucial crucial breakthrough in the whole tshuva movement in the in 1984, said the thing I loved most about him is I could never get him to say I did this. The phrase I made somebody from never would have come off of his lips. Never couldn't have happened. Wow, Jonasson Rosenblum is with us. The book is called A Tap on the Shoulder of a Mayor Schuster and a Magical era of tshuva. You reminded me, uh, I mean, unfortunately, but it's such an amazing account of uh, of his reaction. Uh, you reminded us in the book that uh, he and his wife lost their daughter when she was hit by a car at six years old. He, he sits shiva, and as he's going through this tremendous grief and mourning, and who can even imagine the type of grief and mourning that he and his wife were going through, he's asking... Their oldest child. Right, yeah. their oldest child. He's asking himself... Um, should I be at the Kotel now? There are souls that now during this week need to be guided in the right direction and there's no one there to do it. Should I be at the Kotel now? And thought seriously about, um, uh, about leaving the Shiva house to go to, to go back to work, so to speak. And he, and he, he asked a serious Shila of a serious posake. Um, you know, during that difficult period. I think that says a lot about him. Well, <laughs> but I, I only want to correct one thing. He didn't say, should I be? He was pushing to him, and he was there on, on Leil Shabbos. I, I believe he was there on Leil Shabbos. That Friday night, but, right. Yeah, that Friday night. But he didn't ask, should I? It was, it was so clear to him that this was a case of saving souls. This was a life this was a matter of life and death that he should be there. And the, the, Shiloh, the question was brought to Rav Eliashev, the, the foremost decisor of that era. Uh, and and he, he, he agreed with the, the, the calculation. He agreed that it was Pikuach Nefesh, it was life-saving work. And, but he said nobody will understand it, including among those who didn't understand it, was his own wife who found it very painful that his, she told me, she said, I just couldn't understand it. And even when Rav Eliashev himself did something almost unprecedented, because he very rarely left his 
neighborhood in Mea Sharim came to make a shiva call to to the Schusters. She said even then it was it was hard for to deal with it. You couldn't give a week for your for your oldest daughter. This was a girl, six years old, who one couple I met told me on their way back from a summer in in the, the neighborhood in which the Schusters lived, on the plane with her husband, all they talked about for the whole flight was this six-year-old girl. She was so bad. She was so charming. She was so full of life. Everybody knew her. And his wife thought, you can't even give a week. But his sense of mission was so overwhelming. Yeah, and he was besatted with this uh, girl. Her name was Shatsy, which is a Swiss nickname that one of the neighbors gave her. That's what they called her, Shatsy. And, um, yeah, that's the, that's wow. the story that captures really everything about her up there. You could say that again. Why, and again, you've seen the scene at the Kotel in that era from both sides, essentially, uh, or from many, really, many aspects. Why were there not more people doing this type of thing, or were there plenty of people who were schlepping people off the wall and and asking random people if they want to, you know, spend Shabbos here or there? Uh, but he, but because of his unique style, his background, his consistency, the amount, the number of, uh, the amount of time, and the number of people he reached, that you know, he ends up being again, you know, the king of all this. What, was there a big effort at that time in general in Jerusalem, or was he an exclusive? <laughs> There were others. I mean, we used to get a lot of guests from somebody who flashed like a bright light and definitely had charisma. It was a single single young man, not married, uh, could talk a mile a minute, uh, had a lot of charm, and he flashed bright on the scene for a period, a couple years maybe, uh, and then burnt out. There's somebody... Else with whom Rap Schuster did work, named Jeff Seidel, right. who was famous for his saddle shoes right. and can still probably be found at the Kota on, mm-hmm. on, on a Friday night. <laughs> and they worked together. They would, at some point, when they, the load became so large, there were hundreds of people going for Shabbos uh, uh, meals that they, they would split it up and they would split out the allocation of people. They worked together for a, a, a fair amount of time. There's a picture of them together right. in the book. Yeah, sure. So Jeff has been at it for a long time. Right, that's true. And there was somebody named Mordecai Edelman who right. maybe worked for uh, maybe worked for Ace. I'm not sure if he was. There were others. There were others. But he was the Even legend. The idea of Heritage House. Uh, Hillel Goldberg has a 1984 article in Jewish Observer where he, I think he may even use Soul Seekers. He calls it. But he interviews a number of a number of others, and uh, and the idea of, of a hostel uh, was an idea that that a number of people mentioned to to Hillel Goldberg at the time. The difference was that Rameir made it happen. Rameir right. found the funders. He yeah. found the, <laughs> you know the it's fu- and, and 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 I love your description in the book of why he thought it was necessary, especially as Arab and other type of hostels were sprouting up in the area, and he felt it was you know appro- right. not not only appropriate but necessary. Uh, and, and I always wonder about that. You know, the 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 look. We know the style <laughs> that 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 he implemented in order to get people off the wall. We we get that. Uh, and I always wonder when things become official and when an, when an organization needs to be founded and Heritage House has to be established. You know, I, I wonder if the, you know, a, a, of, a, of a certain, you know, pioneering uh, um, aspect to the whole thing, uh, you know, is lost. 
uh, because now, you know, you're an official organization. Now you have an address. You know, it used to be that we were just, you know, (laughs) operating on the wall, and now we have an actual place where we have to take care of people. Uh, I mean, I— Yeah, but the Heritage House was a qualitative change. It was a leap uh, because— he always felt there were a lot of people who had to come in. They needed an intermediate step. Right. And I have some testimony there from uh, somebody, Seth Damsky, right. who's a uh, bus in, uh, in, uh, in Passaic today. He was a Harvard student at the time and spent a little time there. He, he you know, he said, if I wouldn't have had an intermediate step, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have eventually come into Asia Torah. I wouldn't, have, you know, they needed, they needed that step. So it was. There's a myth that Rev. Mayor did nothing besides tap people on the shoulder. That's not true, and he he had a keen he did have a sense of what of what he was doing, what he was about. Uh, you see a different side of him. There's uh, at, at some point in the book, I bring four letters that he wrote to a right. student who had gone back to America. Yeah, he spent a lot of see, time. These being are a, not uh, these are not matter of fact letters. These yeah. are. They're a Megillah. They're, mm-hmm. the, he goes into depth. He talks something about the Parsha. He talks. He knew the person was unhappy in America and connected in New York. He, he, they were real personal letters. They took time, and he would write hundreds of them. Uh, I think he chased my one of my sister-in-laws to the kibbutz that she was at, <laughs> and you know he just had her address. All he needed was your address, and people would come back to their hostel and they'd say. Are you Debbie? She'd say, yes, Debbie. Well, the rabbi's been calling you. He's been there. The rabbi calls every five minutes. Is Debbie back yet? Is Debbie back yet? He was absolutely relentless. I mean, a good friend of mine, you know, when it was, he bought a ticket for Engedi because he looked around for yeshiva. He had gotten out of the army. He had been in the Aleutian Islands. as the only Jew and 3,000 sailors in the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska. He came to Yerushalayim, he went to look for a yeshiva, and he couldn't find one. So I said, okay, Hashem, if you... I looked around your city, I didn't find what I was looking for, and he got on the bus to... He was on the, about to get on the bus to Engedi, and, and uh, Rav Schuster tapped him on the shoulder, and he realized, but he still got on the bus, and then he thought to himself, what a fool. I asked Hashem to help me one more time, and he did. He sent this guy, and he looked at Rav Meir as he was getting on the bus, looking through the window, he said, but he didn't have to worry because Ramirez had gotten his address and he wrote to him on the kibbutz he was staying on, and he's he's now the father of twelve kids. Actually, the oldest daughter has twelve kids. I mean, these stories just multiply and multiply. Unbelievable. I, I, and finally, and I I could do this for hours with you, frankly. <laughs> um, uh, but but at some point, I got to wrap it up. But if, uh, finally, you debunk the myth that I frankly grew up with. That if one would buy a watch for a mayor Schuster, it would be the end of all his efforts at the Koto. <laughs> because because the rumor was when I was a kid that the way he opened up a conversation because of his shyness, etc., uh, was to ask people if they have the time. He did, but he was still wearing a watch. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a watch, but nonetheless used it as an opening line. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, That's right. there's a strategy to reach everybody, I guess, and he knew it. He knew that he could reach yeah. every soul. Pretty amazing, I'll tell well, you. He knew that every soul was was reachable. If you look at my column this, in Mishpacha this week, you'll see we just underestimate the power of a Jewish soul. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. I'm sure out of every 10 people that he 
he spoke to probably eight told him to buzz off. Out of right. every two that came right. to a yeshiva or a seminary, uh, many of them didn't stay past right. uh, a day or two at the most. Yeah, he had to deal but with a lot of... The numbers mount up. Right. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of people who upended their lives, right. changed as, their whole life. As any good salesman knows, he probably went through a tremendous amount of rejection and had to deal with it. Tremendous, and he didn't... That never got him down. I don't think, I think he never was down. In other words, he, he, he collected money as a fundraiser. He would take every $18 check. He was indefatigable. You know, he just, the, the, he would go to a door, he'd go to somebody a hundred times, having the receiver slammed on him didn't put him off either. You couldn't insult him. You couldn't push him away. You couldn't get rid of him. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. How, how long has he gone? Uh, seven years, but before that, there was um, a difficult illness, right? Difficult period of yeah. four years. He had a disease which is a combination of Lou Gehrig's and Alzheimer's. I mean, it's got its own names, Louis Body Disease, but it's uh, it's just a horrendous, horrendous disease. And uh, and you know, he was still he was still trying to push through it. He took two trips to America, fundraising trips, which I described there. Yeah. At a time when he should definitely not have been out of the house, um, and he, in those times he did have a shadow with him, and people didn't exactly understand, uh, you know, what was going on. And he still, he just didn't want to give up. And uh, that, that's a that is a sad that's a sad part of his life. So his effective work he probably ended in around two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. Jonas and Rosenblum, the book is a tap on the shoulder. Rabbi Mayer's sister and a magical era of tshuva. I cannot recommend this book highly enough, everybody. Remember, artscroll.com is the website. Order the book. Uh, major discount plus free shipping if you use promo code radio. That's the rule always at artscroll.com. Always use promo code radio. Simple as that. Um, Jonas and Rosenblum, we got to have you on more often. Uh, okay. we, we got, <laughs> there is, I can only imagine someone of your background, your intellect, and now all this experience of living in Israel, I can only imagine how you view so many of the things that go on today, especially in our beloved state of Israel. Uh, did you survive the, did you survive the most recent coalition you've survived so far? The most recent well, so far, we're doing okay. <laughs> we're doing okay. <laughs> you don't but, feel, you uh, don't feel, wait a second. You don't, you, some... you don't feel the world's coming to an end. You sure? <laughs> no, no. I'm actually I'm much more optimistic about Israel than I am about America. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll see this in my writing. I've started writing again in Yetet just because I had so much I wanted to get off my chest that one column a week wasn't enough. I, I mean, I went back to Yetet. I've written there for many years. Right. Uh, but uh, there's so much that, that has to be said. Uh, you know, I think ultimately the future is is here. The future of the Jewish people is here. That's what we always and say, the future, future of the Jewish yeah. peoples in the state of Israel. What city are you from in America? Chicago. Chicago, Illinois. Wow. Yeah, you know what's going on. Yeah. You following what's going on in Chicago these days? You mean the mayor? Yeah. The mayor. Lightfoot, yeah. The, the, mayor, the mayor and the wanton murder of people, including a Jewish girl who was stabbed, this, was stabbed and murdered this week in Chicago? Oh, no, Dad, I didn't hear about it. It's just... Wow. Uh, in uh, Rogers Park? 
Well, I don't know what neighborhood it was in, and the girl was from uh, wow. somewhere in the seaboard, meaning uh, somewhere from Maryland, I believe. But um, it's a, it's just, I mean, what's going on in general, uh, not even speaking at the moment about the Jewish community, just in general, the way the city is imploding. As yesterday, what we need is, the, the, the answer to this violence is stricter gun control laws. I mean, Chicago has the strictest gun control laws in, in, the, in the country, practically. And you, and yet you could still get, uh, an, you can have where 15 people being shot to death over uh, a weekend is not, not rare. And I went, I went to school on the south side of Chicago with the University of Chicago, which is in a ghetto. Oh, so you're a White Sox <laughs> so, fan? I, nope, actually not. <laughs> you're a yeah. you're a South Sider, and you're not a White Sox fan. Well, that's true. But I grew up in a northern suburb, yeah. and the truth is. For the first time in my life, I'm trying to see maybe he would help bring the Gula. This is I'm learning the base, the base of Avi and Shalom. I said, you know, it wouldn't hurt me to follow the White Sox too. They've got a great team this year. Too. I can follow them both. <laughs> well, the two people I discussed the White Sox with and the Cubs with on the air are you and Barrel and Rabbi Barrel Wide. So you're in good company. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I well, thank you. I don't even know who they wrote for. Yeah, I, I think he told me. I mean, he was happy with the Cubs won, but earlier than that, I think he did tell me that that he was pretty happy and shocked to hear that the White Sox had won one as well. So yeah. this, he may well, have the Cubs. Being a lifelong Cubs fan was until 2016 was really a metaphor for waiting for Mashiach. Yeah, and you know, they gave us a lot of hope. If the Cubs, if you know, they say most teams can have a bad year, some have a. But the Cubs are the only team that had a bad century. It's <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Much appreciated. Yeah. Look forward to speaking to you again. It's nice to be with you. Nothing called to Jonas and Rosenblum, you know the book, everybody. It's called Tap on the Shoulder. More coming up. You are listening to a Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. Western Wall on Friday night. It's first time ever there. Strapped into his knapsack with his long curly hair He stood there for a while Then broke out with a smile Motion overwhelming joy with tears The men were dancing there The hearts so full of love They sang such happy tunes To thank the one above for showing them the way For giving them a day To rest, rejoice with peace of mind To pray For those of you who don't know, that song was inspired by the life and work of Ray Mayer's sister. And if you pay careful attention to the lyrics, I guess that's obvious. The classic Just One Shabbos from many, many years ago, but inspired by Rev Mayer's sister of blessed memory. My thanks to Jonas and Rosenblum. What a book. Go to artsworld.com. Use promo code radio. Order the book. 
a tap on the shoulder, it's pretty amazing.